Now we're ready. <laughs> good morning to you all. Oh, uh, good to be back uh, here, and thank you for that wonderful introduction at the White Brockton. Um, it has been a joy to get to know you as well, and I am grateful for our friendship, um, and particularly for you, the way you and so many others here blessed and served uh, our son, Nabil. So this morning, uh, for our last message here, uh, I'm throwing a little bit of an audible, calling a little bit of an audible uh, that happened this morning. Um, I was going to um, wrap this up talking more about doing as it relates to beautiful community. And uh, I decided to change that up and talk more to you this morning about resting. Uh, we're all tired. Well, I don't want to talk more about doing. I want to talk to you about resting, particularly resting in our royal beauty. Resting in our royal beauty. Let me share with you a passage of scripture from the Old Testament from uh, prophet Isaiah, uh, chapter 61 and verse 10 to 62 and verse 12. Isaiah 61.10 to 62.12. Let me read this and then I will pray. Here's God's word. I will, I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall exult in my God for he has clothed me with the garments of salvation. He has covered me with the robe of righteousness. As a bridegroom decks himself like a priest with a beautiful headdress as a bride adorns herself with jewels. For as the earth brings forth its sprouts and as a garden causes what is sown in it to sprout up, so the Lord God will cause righteousness and praise to sprout up before all the nations. For Zion's sake, I will not keep silent and for Jerusalem's sake, I will not be quiet until her righteousness goes forth as brightness and her salvation as a burning torch. The nations shall see your righteousness and all the kings your glory, and you shall be called by a new name that the mouth of the Lord will give. You shall be a crown of beauty in the hand of the Lord and a royal diadem in the hand of your God. You shall no more be termed forsaken and your land shall no more be termed desolate, but you shall be called, my delight is in her, and your land married. For the Lord delights in you, and your land shall be married. For as a young man marries a young woman, so shall your sons marry you. And as the bridegroom rejoices over the bride, so shall your God rejoice over you. On your walls, O Jerusalem, I have set watchmen all the day and all the night. They shall never be silent. You who put the Lord in remembrance, take no rest and give him no rest until he establishes Jerusalem and makes it a praise in the earth. The Lord has sworn by his right hand and by his mighty arm, I will not again give your grain to be food to you for your enemies, and foreigners shall not drink your wine for which you have labored. But those who garner it shall eat it and praise the Lord, and those who gather it shall drink it in the courts of my sanctuary." Go through, go through the gates, prepare the way for the people, build up, build up the highway, clear it of stones, lift up a signal over the peoples. Behold, the Lord has proclaimed to the end of the earth, 
Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your salvation comes. Behold, his reward is with him and his recompense before him. And they shall be called the holy people, the redeemed of the Lord. And you shall be called sought out, a city not forsaken. This is God's word. Would you pray with me? Lord, we thank you again for your word that is alive, that is active, sharp. We pray, Lord, that you would be pleased to take these efforts of mine, weak and unworthy as they may be, and use them to bless your people this morning, to meet us where we are and give us what we need, that we would be people who live for the glory and fame and praise of Jesus Christ. And it is in his name that we pray. Amen, amen, and amen. Well, uh, a couple of years ago, uh, there was a scandal in Saudi Arabia. Um, there, there, in January of 2018, uh, a dozen camels were disqualified from the camel beauty contest. Why were they disqualified from the pageant, you ask? They were disqualified for receiving Botox injections and receiving some plastic surgery to make themselves appear more attractive. A Saudi media reported that a veterinarian was caught performing plastic surgery on the camels a few days before the pageant. In addition to the injections, the clinic was surgically reducing the size of the camel's ears to make them appear more delicate. An article on uh, the, uh, the scandal said they use Botox for the lips, the nose, the upper lips, the lower lips, and even the jaw. It makes the head more inflated, so when the camel comes, it's like, oh, look at how big that head is. It has big lips, a big nose. Look, real money is at stake. More than $31.8 million in prizes are awarded for those pageants. They even provide a diagram for the judges on standards for camel beauty. Now, you and I are unlikely to come across any uh, camel beauty pageants here in the United States, but we do know what it's like to commodify beauty. We do know what it's like to parade people across a stage and make uh, judgments uh, about their physical appearance. We can commodify beauty and exploit it for gain because a fundamental feature of beauty is pleasure. Simply put, beauty delights. And although we twist that pleasure into exploitation, it's still the case that pleasure and beauty are intimately connected. And I'm talking to you this morning about resting in our royal beauty, but I almost titled this message, There's Something to Shout About. There's so much joy in the passage of Scripture from Isaiah that I read that, uh, that it might make Presbyterians uncomfortable. Look, this text, this text is actually a praise break. 
And the something to shout about is that in spite of our mess, in spite of the way that we don't trust one another, uh, in spite of the fact that we're not magnificent, magnificently merciful, that we don't excellently extend mercy or we're not lavish with our love, in spite of the fact that the people of God are sometimes ugly toward one another and toward our neighbors, God himself promises that he will make us beautiful. Do you hear what the prophet said in verse 2 of the passage? You're going to be called by a new name that the Lord will give you. That name is going to be, he said in verse 4, my delight is in her, Isaiah says, for the Lord delights in you. You see, this beauty will not be exploitative. This beauty will not be about commodifying our looks for unjust gain. No, it's going to be for a praise and a glory in the earth. And as we press against the darkness, as we press against the darkness that is in our world, the darkness that is still trying to come against our own hearts, as we strive by the grace of God to prevent, uh, to, 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 to push against the, the things that prevent uh, our, our branch, branches of the church from growing in beauty, we can rest. We can shout for joy because we can rest. Sisters and brothers, we can rest in the Lord's promise to beautify his people. We have no power. We have no power to stop the beautification process because it is not based on us. It is based on God's promise. It is based on God's promise made to his people. So I want to talk about three things in this message on resting in royal beauty, the appointed time, the anointed one, and the amazing rest. The appointed time, the anointed one, and the amazing rest. And by the appointed time, what I mean is the, the, the moment in time when this promise was made. You see, we get clued in on that in the poem itself. We already saw that the Lord promises to give them a new name. Uh, uh, well, you only, you only get a new name if it's meant to replace an old name. Right? You don't get a new name if the old name is working out well for you. What is, what is the name that needs replacing? In verse 4, you shall no longer be called abandoned. Your, your land won't be named desolate anymore. And listen, the land is not what it that's the reality of that moment in time. The, the land ain't what it used to be. The glory days of, of King David and King Solomon for Israel were long in the past. Even as they as there might be back in the land, it still feels desolate, a, a shadow of its former self. How are you to believe the promise at a time when your experience tells you that things are frail and fragile and seem to be hanging on by a thread? How do you not scoff at the notion of a promise of lavish abundance and a time, at a time when the former glory is just a distant memory? 
The answer for them back at that time, the answer for them is the same as it is for us today. It must be by faith. This isn't news, but the Lord always calls his people to apprehend his promises primarily by faith and not by sight. To put it another way, we always live. We always live as those who are waiting. My father's favorite poem was the poem If by Rudyard Kipling, and, uh, and I came to memorize it many, many, many years uh, ago. And I love the stanza in the poem when, when Kipling writes, if you can wait and not be tired by waiting uh, or being lied about, don't deal in lies or being hated, don't give way to hating. Can we wait? holding to the promise and not be tired in our waiting. Can you wait and not be tired by the waiting as, uh, as, as a church still deals and wrestles with issues of race and class and culture and gender? Can you sing in your hearts the words of that spiritual by James Cleveland, I don't feel no ways tired. I've come so far from where I started from. Nobody told me the road would be easy. I don't believe he's brought me this far to leave me. Do you have room in your heart to sing that refrain? Because the time of the promise always, always calls for an exercise of faith in the face of life. One commentator, uh, Alec Moyer, on this passage, he strikes a chord in his commentary when he says, the time of promise calls for an exercise of faith in the face of life, not life as it rushes to meet us with all its traps and snares, but life as we have helped to shape it by our wrong choices, faithlessness, and sin. You hear what he's saying? Sometimes the exercise of faith in the face of life isn't required because you're enduring persecution. No, sometimes it's necessary because we actually live out the results of our own wrong choices and faithlessness and sin. Why is it that their old name was abandoned and forsaken? It's not because they were being persecuted by the Babylonians. It's because that's the name that they earned as a result of the sinful choices they made. And now we know that in Jesus Christ, we will never be called forsaken. That's not a name that, we will, that will ever belong to, the, to his church. But the sobering truth is that we always have to be honest in and open to how our sin has helped to shape our current reality. We have to be honest about and ask the Lord to reveal to us where explicit or implicit sin has played a role in our life as majority mono-ethnic Christian spaces. Yes, even as a denomination that I'm a part of, the PCA. In my own denomination, we and open and asking the Lord to reveal to us the ways in which our sin has played a role in what many women experience in the denomination. Dr. Dr. Whitebrock alluded to it. 
in her introduction. It wasn't too long ago I preached at a church in our denomination and a young African-American woman approached me um, uh, during the fellowship time after the service and this was around the time after we had in our denomination done a study committee report on the ministry of women in the church. It was a group of, of men and women on that committee and I, I chaired that committee and uh, she, she came up to me and she said to me, I've read through the women in the ministry of the church study committee report for the second time and taken more notes. And then she asked me, will the PCA ever be a place where I feel empowered as a woman? Now what could I say? I could say something like, why are you seeking to feel empowered? Are you trying to usurp the authority structure that God has ordained for the church? No, the right response is to ask the Lord to reveal the ways in which our sinfulness has helped to shape life in our denomination such that this sister's experience is that there isn't room in our church for her gifts to flourish. The time of promise calls for an exercise of faith in the face of life, an exercise of faith uh, uh, that calls us to an examination of the ways in which our practices and even, yes, maybe sin has helped to shape our current reality. And see, we're free to press into this examination because of the anointed one, the person who makes the, the promise. I love, I love this passage, and I love this passage in part because of how intimate it is. The words of, of verse 10, I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul will rejoice in my God. And chapter 62 and verse 1 says, For the sake of Zion, I will not be silent. And for the sake of Jerusalem, I will not keep quiet. Upon your walls, O Jerusalem, I will appoint watchmen and at first blush, it seems, uh, though it's only the prophet Isaiah who is speaking out, but this is the declaration of the anointed one. This is the declaration of the same person who said in Isaiah 61, who spoke at the beginning of that chapter, who said, the spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, the opening of the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who who mourn to grant those who mourn in Zion to give them a beautiful headdress instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, the garment of praise instead of a faint spirit, that they may be called oaks of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that he may be glorified. There is a dual intimacy here. There is an intimacy between the anointed one and the father. There's an intimacy between the anointed one and the people of promise. See, there's something to shout about because the Savior shouts with joy. 
When Jesus chose Isaiah 61 as the text for his first sermon, he wasn't just declaring himself to be the anointed one of that passage. He was laying claim to being the anointed one of that whole section of Isaiah. Jesus is the only preacher in history who has the goods to preach a sermon about himself. And what does the anointed one say here? I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul will rejoice in my God. And what is the reason for all of his joy? It is because his God has dressed him in salvation's garments. He's wrapped him in the cloak of righteousness. Here's the first aspect of this imagery. Back in Isaiah chapter 59 and verse 14, the declaration was that justice is turned back and righteousness stands far away for truth has stumbled in the public squares and uprightness cannot enter. Isaiah says in chapter 59 and verse 15 that the Lord saw it and it displeased him that there was no justice. So he needed to take care of the problem himself. And so the prophet says the Lord's own arm brought him salvation and his righteousness upheld him. He put on righteousness as a breastplate and the helmet of salvation on his head. And now in the text that I read for you this morning, we find out that the Lord accomplishes this by transferring this clothing to the anointed one. This is the beautiful picture of intimacy between the Father and the Son in the work of salvation. The anointed one does not need to wear salvation's garments for his own sake. He doesn't need to wear the cloak of righteousness on his own behalf. He doesn't need saving. He, he wears it for the sake of those who need salvation and putting these clothes on makes him shout for joy. I mentioned yesterday about my roots in Wilmington, North Carolina, how my grandmother left uh, North Wilmington for Harlem in 1947 as part of the great American migration of African Americans out of the southern states. And each of her six children eventually made it up to New York City. My mother came in 1952, as I said. So I was surrounded by large, large family during my childhood years in New York City's aunts and uncles and, and cousins and uh, an extended family. Uh, and holidays were always loud and boisterous in my house in Brooklyn. Uh, we lived, my grandmother lived with us, so our house was family central and it was always loud. And when Easter rolled around, we knew we were getting, it. we knew at least two things. We knew that we, there was some kind of play that we were going to go see on Broadway that my grandmother was going to get tickets for us to go see as a family. And we knew that the boys were getting new suits and the girls were going to get a new dress. We would be decked out for Easter. I had more joy about my new suit than I did about the resurrection. We can relate to that. You you know how getting new clothes makes you, makes you feel good. Right? You know how getting new clothes makes you, makes you feel good. It lifts your spirits. Well, the anointed one, he's, 
he's shouting for joy over his clothes, but his joy is because his clothes are for us. He's wearing salvation's garments for you and for me. This text gives us insight into what the writer says in Hebrews chapter 12 when he says, Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin that clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the author and the founder or perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross despising the the shame. My my old pastor years ago used to say, look, how are we going to lose with the stuff we use? We can rest because Jesus' joy that the Father has dressed him in the garments of salvation and righteousness for us. And it goes even further than that. I said that there was a dual intimacy with the person of promise. His intimacy is not just with his God, it's with his people. So he says in verse 1, For the sake of Zion, I will not be silent. For the sake of Jerusalem, I will not keep quiet until her righteousness goes forth like a bright light and her salvation burns like a torch. I'm a 1980s hip-hop head. I'm not a 2020s hip-hop head. I'm a 1980s hip-hop head. That means I grew up on like Run DMC and all of their songs are still on my playlist. And they used to have this song about people who talk too much. And they had this line in the song that said, 25 hours, 8 days a week, 13 months out the year is when you speak. You talk too much. You talk too much. You talk too much, homeboy. You never shut up. The anointed one is saying here, I refuse to shut up. 25 hours, 8 days a week, 13 months out of the year is when I'm going to speak. I'm going to keep on speaking. I will not close my mouth until Zion's righteousness is as bright as the sun. And who is the anointed one talking to? He is talking to his God. I'm not going to give him any rest until this picture of beauty and glory is fully painted. Why can we rest? Because the Savior says he won't rest until the work is done. Indeed, he invites watchmen in verse 7 to give the Lord no rest until the work is done. Can, I, can, we sit, can we sit in this for just a moment this morning? Can we embrace the celebration and the joy of this passage this morning, especially if you are feeling exhaustion, uh, especially if, uh, if you are wearied by your labors in the Christian faith and the church, waiting to see hearts change, waiting to see the development of cross-cultural life and love among the people of God. If you're wearied by the rhetoric and the talking past one another, as folks tweet and they write and they make statements about social justice, against social justice, for social justice, against critical race theory, for critical race theory, for, against Marxism, all of that. Can you hear the anointed one saying to you, rest in joy over the fact 
that he's working, that he has the Father's ear, and that he will not close his mouth until righteousness and justice shine brightly throughout the earth? Can you have joy in your heart and rest in your soul that he's got it? That he's got it. Last, last thing. We can rest, this amazing rest, because this is all about what God is doing and will do. We cannot in our own strength bring about the beauty that we want to see. As him says, did we in our own strength confide our striving would be losing? We're not the right man on our side, the man of God's own choosing. And look at the picture of beauty that's painted for us in this passage. Listen, I quoted from Isaiah 61 earlier where the anointed one said that he would give them a beautiful headdress instead of ashes. But the imagery of beauty is changed in chapter 62 and verse 3. Did, it, did you notice it says, you will be a beautiful crown in the hand of the Lord and a royal diadem in the hand of your God. You're not going to wear a beautiful crown. You're going to be a beautiful crown. You won't be wearing a royal diadem. You're going to be a royal diadem. The anointed one wears the garments of righteousness and salvation with joy because he can see the end. He can see the fullness of time and the royal beauty of his people on full display. This is the vision of the full number of the redeemed shining together in radiant and regal beauty. This is the picture the royal beauty of the people of God that's pictured for us in Isaiah chapter 62 and, and it's carried through to the end in, in Revelation where we see it on full display. And this, is, this ought to be a balm for our soul. When we're in the middle of the mess, we're in the middle of the struggling in the church and in our communities, can we have the kind of vision that looks at image bearers and sees the end? Sees the reunion and the reunification of humanity brought together in the royal beauty that the anointed one promises. As we work for beauty in our churches and in our communities, can we find, we can find amazing rest in this vision of what the Lord promises to do. You won't simply wear a crown, you'll be a beautiful crown. You won't simply wear a royal diadem, you'll be a, a royal diadem. But he says you'll be a beautiful crown in the hand of the Lord. You'll be a royal diadem in the hand of your God. The beauty will never fade. The brilliance will never dull because the Lord doesn't only make us beautiful. He will keep us beautiful. He will uphold us in beauty. To be kept, as one writer said, in his hand, to be kept, to be in his hand is to be kept guarded and upheld. To be a crown is to be that which expresses kingliness not the exercise of royal power, the wearing of a crown, but the possession of royal worth and dignity. The Lord's people will be the sign that he is the king. Can we rest, sisters and brothers? Can we rest in the royal beauty 
that is ours because of the work of the anointed one. And I say, yes, we can. Amen and amen. Let's pray. Oh, Lord and our God, we thank you that you are the one who makes and who keeps the promise of perfecting us in royal beauty. We thank you for this vision, Lord, that, that you celebrate Jesus because you know and see the end. We pray that you would give us the desire, the heart, the passion, the will to look at fellow image bearers and see the end. See the, the royal dignity, see the royal beauty that is surely coming as night follows day. Do it for your glory. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen, amen, and amen.